Hello, and welcome to Retelling. Retelling is a podcast that explores the power of story and its role in shaping culture. Our particular interest is in science fiction and fantasy stories that are told and retold across a variety of media. In this first episode, Jim and I will be discussing the idea that humans are constantly telling and retelling stories, and what those stories can mean to us as individuals and as cultures. Here, we'll use the story Blood Child by Octavia Butler as our first example, and bring in ideas from C.S. Lewis and Roland Barthes. In the process, we'll ask ourselves and the text a lot of questions, such as, does the original intent of the author matter? And what is the role of the listener? Be aware that there may be some spoilers. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, the retelling. So, what are you excited about this episode? Gosh, where do I start? Um, well, I'm excited about Blood Child because it's one of those stories that I would typically not like if I were watching it as a movie, mm -hmm. but that I enjoy because I'm reading it. So that's kind of fun to think about. Um, I'm also excited to talk about the power of stories and the different ways that they can bring meaning to our lives and the different ways that they can be told and the different media that they can be told in. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that Blood Child as a movie might not be as enjoyable as Blood Child as a story. I mean, if you think about, you know, the idea that we create this picture in our mind when we hear a story, and it's a picture that we can live with and accept as opposed to when like a TV, um, you know, producer or movie producer or whatever puts something together, they might create imagery that um, is what they find acceptable or their interpretation, but that mm -hmm. might be a little harsh for us. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have sensitive eyes when it comes to <laughs> watching films and television. So, um, yeah, I would definitely have a hard time watching this, yeah. but I enjoy reading it. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I do, I, I, um, you know, we've used blood child over the years, you know, as a short story in our, um, courses mm -hmm. and I really, I really enjoy the story. I, I like, um, I like that it just, it has a lot going on, um, from mm -hmm. a story um, and that it, it's one of those stories that I think, and we'll talk about it more towards the end, but it's one of those stories that really um, can connect to people in different ways. So that's one thing I'm excited about. I think mm -hmm. I'm also excited about, we're going to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis and his essay on science fiction, yes. uh, bring that into the conversation. And, um, you know, uh, I've, I've read that article multiple times and I even got something different out of it this time when I read it, mm -hmm. um, which I think happens a lot of times even with stories, right? If you hear a story a second time or a third time or you hear someone else tell the story, I think that's kind of a fascinating uh, aspect of how stories work. I, I agree with you. And sorry to already go on a short tangent, but you just reminded me that um, some people in my life, and I'm sure this is true for you too, love to rewatch the same movie over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. And some people only want to see a movie once. Right. Like once and done. Yeah. And I think that yeah. that says something about the way that they process stories too. Now, do you reread books? Not as frequently as I rewatch movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same here. I can rewatch TV shows, movies. I love going back to a lot of science fiction TV, you know, Star Trek, which we'll talk about in the future. Mm -hmm. um, you know, shows along those lines, Battlestar Galactica, Babylon 5, all these you know, sci-fi things. I love to go back and rewatch those. But typically, mm -hmm. once I've read the story, um, I don't go back and reread it again. And uh, that's an interesting. I mean, that's something we could talk about maybe in the future. Uh, is why some stories are... Um, you know, retellable in some aspects and in some ways not. 
Oh, I totally think we should. And I love the fact that since we're on the topic of science fiction at this moment, any time that you say sometime in the future, you're actually punning. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for calling out my puns. Um, (laughs) I will speculate about that later. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so there's this power in stories and how stories work and this this way in which stories shape us um, every day. They shape our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And that's always fascinated me because there is not... One aspect, I think, of a human's life that doesn't involve some type of story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we tell kids stories, you know, either about our own pasts, you know, or we tell people we meet stories about ourselves so that they get to know who we are and they in turn tell us stories. Mm -hmm. Um, We we repeat stories, myths, fairy tales, you know, um, all these different types of stories, uh, from a religious perspective, you know, stories, right? I mean, every faith, every faith practice has stories that are part mm-hmm. of that. Um, and this is not so much science fiction, but um, I have to tell you, like we talk about current things. Like I just finally watched um, Seven Psychopaths. Um, <laughs> I've never even heard of Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths is an older movie. And you know, when you know when you watch a trailer for a movie, which is a story unto itself, right? You know, this, it's true. Uh, it's like a little mini mini story. Yeah, so it's this mini story. So the Seven Psychopaths, like this two two thousand and twelve movie that has Colin Farrell, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, Christopher Walken, um, oh, it has wow. all, all these different people in it, right? And um, it's it's a it, it's a story about telling a story. <laughs> so so it's about colin farrell whose character wants to write a screenplay you know and his friend billy who's sam rockwell um who wants to help him write this screenplay and in doing that he starts to create stories by becoming a psychopath (laughs) uh but (laughs) because he wants to give him something to do and he and he is he's crazy but it's a fat if you watch the movie it's a comedy with dark comedy, but from mm-hmm. the perspective of story, the mm-hmm. way in which it has a story within a story within a story. So you have Christopher Walken's character, and this is a spoiler for anyone who's not watched the film. You're okay with spoilers, right? I'm totally okay with spoilers. You're yes. okay with spoilers. I'm okay with spoilers sometimes because I like spoilers. You know, I sometimes like a spoiler so I can be on the lookout for what's going to happen in the movie. Um, but I know some people don't like spoilers, so I've said it enough now that they can not listen if they don't want to ruin it. <laughs> so there's a story that um, Colin Farrell starts telling about this. And, and, and the movie switches into a story mode, right? And talks about a psychopath because he's given the stories behind all the psychopaths. So it gives the story of the psychopath and the psychopath kills somebody but then regrets it and then, and then finds faith. But he's constantly followed by the father, right, of the of the of the daughter that he killed and um he finally comes to this conclusion that the only way he's ever going to be able to escape this father who keeps stalking him because he killed his daughter is to kill himself because as a catholic that's the one the only place the only sin that's unforgivable is suicide from the catholic perspective so he'll go to hell and this quaker father who's a quaker right Uh um uh, won't be able to follow him there and so um, later on in years, he slits his own throat, right? And, and the last thing he sees out his window is uh, on the street corner is the Quaker father slitting his own throat. Oh my gosh, this is definitely not a Becky movie. <laughs> to follow him, so he can follow him. 
So later on, so Marty's telling Martin, the one character is Colin Farrell's telling this story, and Sam Rockwell says, Stop telling that story. He says, I'm the one that told you that story, you know. Uh-huh. And so they're at this dinner and they're sitting down with Christopher Walken. And um, earlier on, Christopher Walken has this confrontation with the gangsters, Woody Harrelson, where he takes off his cravat that he's been wearing the whole time. And when he takes off his cravat he's wearing, he has his throat slit, right? And you're like, ooh, that's weird because that's connected to that story somehow. Yeah. So Colin Farrell starts telling this story to Christopher Walken that he originally heard from Sam Rockwell, the Billy character. And Billy comes around and goes, no, stop. Stop telling the story. Stop telling the story to Colin Farrell. And Colin Farrell's why. And Christopher Walken's like, yeah, I want to hear the end of the story, you know. And so he tells him the story. And then Christopher Walken takes off his cravat again, right? And he says, I'm the father in that story. But I didn't die. Okay, this is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> this is creepy. So, so remind us again why you brought up the seven psychopaths. Well, because of the story, <laughs> like the storytelling, right? So, the so, story within the story, story within, within the story. story within the story. And they keep retelling the stories. And then you find out these other stories that people are telling, they're all connected, right? And everybody's story is connected. And then there's this moment in the film, exactly halfway through the film, when they're fleeing to the desert, right? And they're in, all three of them are in the car because... Um, Christopher Walken's job has been stealing people's dogs and then returning them for the reward money, but he ends up, um, Sam Rockwell steals the gangster's dog. And mm-hmm. so they're fleeing. And it's halfway in the movie, and Colin Farrell, who's a pacifist, says, I'm tired of all this violence. I'm tired of all these things that are going on. He said, why can't the, the, the script, the story, he said, at this point, have the characters riding off into the sunset. And of course, on film, there's a sunset in the background as they're driving mm-hmm. away. He says, out into a desert to go live in a tent and talk the rest of the film about how they need to be more peaceful and not, you know, have this, you know, have this mm-hmm. event happen. And so that's exactly where the movie goes. <laughs> okay. So, so I think that that has actually some interesting uh, meta commentary. It does. It does. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No. So, no, it does. I mean, you're right. So, I mean, I, I don't want to go on about this one. Okay. Sorry. You know, <laughs> like, you, you know how I go on. I watch something and I get excited about it. Uh, I know. That's why keeping our, our episodes to 30 minutes is going to be hard for both of us. But It will be. It will be. Sorry, but, listeners. We'll try. We'll try. <laughs> no, it's some really good meta commentary, though, on, like, how much control do you actually have over your own story, like, in mm-hmm. your life, which is something that we are definitely talking about in American culture in the 20th and 21st centuries. Right. So these stories are fluid and they're shaped and reshaped by generations to fit whatever the context is. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. why I was telling that, because that's kind of what they were doing was retelling the story to fit each separate context that's that's taking place. So story has been part of who we are since the the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. You know, we we painted it on walls. We told stories around campfires. Um, you know, eventually, you know, we go from cave drawings to pictographs like hieroglyphics, right? And then we have written text and then we have theater and then we have these modern forms of storytelling to the point in social media now, there's like storytelling modes in social media. So, yeah, fascinating. No, it is fascinating. And you're reminding me of C.S. Lewis, who we're going to talk about in just a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, who says that we have to pay attention to the special conditions of our own time. Mm-hmm. whenever we're reading or consuming a story. And mm-hmm. that's going to come into our conversation of Bloodchild too. I think it's really important to remember that each of us as readers or consumers, however we are receiving a story, um, we are within our own current context. And True. that is a filter mm-hmm. through which we're going to see that story, no matter what the intention of the author 
or producer or director was. Right. So how can we be certain what the original intent of a story was, right? When it was told. Right. And when does it matter? Right. Right. I was just going to ask you, and does it matter? Because, you know, we can go into lots of, if we think about faith-based stories, right? Religious story, mythology, as it's referred to, not meaning something's untrue, but a myth is something that helps us to understand how the world around us works. It's not mm-hmm. always it's not always optimistic. It's just sometimes is right. Mm-hmm. Myth myth is a very important thing. I mean, it was Aristotle, you know, you know, Mister Pure Reason, who said the friend of wisdom is also the friend of myth. So myth provides some insight and wisdom into where we come from, what's happening around us, and where we're going to go, which is completely different than fairy tales, you know, or just entertainment stories or what Shakespeare was doing. Right? They're different. They're different, right? But those are all different kinds of stories. Right. And, and high versus low story, right? We, 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 I think eventually we want to talk a little bit more about this class of story, right? Whether it's high story, low story, if it's told as a comic book story, is it any less a story than if it's written out in some, you know, right. novella in 12 point times New Roman, right? Right. And sometimes, you know, going back to the original intent of the author, mm-hmm. sometimes it does matter to people what the intent of the author is and in certain contexts it is going to matter but in others it won't um and i think that factors too into the high and the low forms of media you know some people just want to be entertained they don't right. really care what the intent of the author was even if the author has like a lot of meaning that they're trying to express and that's going to play a huge part when we look at some octavia butler in a little bit with her uh, bloodchild story, but I always aren't, you know, what's the role of the listener, right. In retelling stories, you know? Right. Um, so there's this concept of what's a listener's role when they receive a story. And I always go back to Roland Barth is a scholar that I go back to a lot. He was a semiotician. He studied mythology. Um, you know, he used semiotics, the sign symbols to analyze myth. And he, and he also used sign symbol, you know, like here are these signs and symbols and what do they signify to the person that engages the symbol, right? Like what mm-hmm. meaning comes out of that? And he mm-hmm. used that a lot with um, even popular culture things like he analyzed professional wrestling and those types of things. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if you're, how familiar you are with Roland Barth. Uh, Mostly I'm familiar with him from my conversations with you. For me. And I, and I know that he is one to be admired because he has a silent S in his name. Yes, 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 that's true. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> not to be confused with the other Barths that exist. Barth there are so yeah. many, but, but more, more closely to your point, um, I appreciate discussions about um, symbol and myth because I do have a background in American studies, mm-hmm. you know, and one of, our, one of our main theoretical orientations is that people use myth and symbol to communicate the most important truths about who they are, Mm -hmm. even though those truths can change over time. um, And, you know, are certainly impacted by context. There's also a certain amount of truth that kind of stays with them. And when we reuse different symbols and different myths um, that kind of carry meaning Mm -hmm. across generations really helps us kind of orient ourselves within humanity and our worldview. And story has been powerful in shaping um, human civilization and cu- culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we could tell, you know, lots of historical, uh, the Saxon gospel, the healing end comes to mind for me. It's something that's extremely powerful that um, shaped the Germanic tribes uh, during the time of the early you know, rise of the Romans in the Catholic church. Um, but if we were to get into some of these, 
these aspects of why does the story shape us? Because leaders use story all the time. Politicians, leaders, people in positions of power use story um, to motivate people, to move people, to engage mm-hmm. them, to get them to see their vision, um, to buy into whatever it is they're trying to, to accomplish. You know, mm-hmm. story plays that role. Now, they may not perceive what they're saying as a story, right? As we talk about it, they might sure. perceive it as it's fact, it's truth. I believe this, you know, um, mm-hmm. and yet, it, yet it's all, it's really, it's the story. You know, even our memory is kind of flawed. We, we don't remember every single aspect detail. We think back to something, no matter how hard we try, our imagination fills in the blanks. We feel we remember the most important parts, but it's still a story, even though it has a lot of truth in it. Well, and that's the thing is that our brains are, are kind of, you know, I was just about to say that our brains are designed <laughs> to recognize story. And that's not the word that I want to use. Um, <laughs> the word that I want to use is um, our brains uh, function in a way that recognizes story. And mm-hmm. that's the result, you know, of that being a very successful approach for us to take, right? right. Because we're a social species. Um, but when you when you bring up politicians um touchy subject and it is a touchy subject but it could be anybody who potentially is in a role of power mm-hmm. it doesn't just have to be politicians um parents <laughs> right parents <laughs> teachers doctors um when you bring that up and you talk about the meaning that they are trying to communicate, right? And then you think about the role of the consumer in receiving that. Yeah. I mean, you think about – Roland Barthes talked about that with the role of the consumer. And he, he sort of said you, you have an option. You know, you can either be a consumer, um, which is someone who, for instance, you read the story, right? And you're like, that was a great story. I was entertained. Move on. You can be a critic. You can hear the story, read the story, see it, whatever form it takes. And then you can begin to, you know, criticize it. Well, it wasn't as good as this story or it wasn't as good as that story. You can tell other people, don't go, don't, don't read that book. Don't go to that movie. Don't listen to that story. Or you can tell people to go to that story and read that. You know, the critic can do that. But Mm -hmm. then there's this part that's the analyzer that he talks about. And the analyzer is this aspect of consumer that says, well, what makes it a good story, right? What are the elements and the components that make it a good story? What are the parts of it that align um, with history? What are the lo- parts of it that actually shapes us sociologically, right? What are the parts that key into our psychological sort of understanding of things? And the analyzer then begins to understand how the story's formed, how the story's crafted, and can filter out some of those things, but then can also in turn understand how to tell story, right? And be able to manipulate it in such a way that right. they become a good storyteller. Uh, right. And it sounds like um, I don't want to I don't want to think any more about that scary movie that you just told us about with the psychopaths. But going back to that, um, it sounds like a lot of those characters were acting as analyzers because they were then actually asking themselves, like, how could this story be told differently? Right. Um, and and manipulating it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think it's important to remember that when you when we both use the word critic and criticism, it doesn't necessarily have to be negative so much as it's um comparative comparative yeah exactly i always you know um whenever we start criticizing each other's discussions Mm -hmm. i always uh tell my students to remember that the actual definition of criticism like doesn't have to imply negativity but 
the person who's who's receiving the criticism has mm-hmm. to be open to the fact that there may be something they could improve. Right. Right. And, and I don't think we're really necessarily talking about it from that perspective of criticism towards correction, but it's more of Plato's um, sort of that everything comes from the good. Right. So right. his whole idea that we're constantly comparing and contrasting things throughout our life. Like, right. How we do, do it automatically. How do you know what a tree is supposed to look like? How do you know what a good apple looks like? How do you know what a lemon, you know, a good lemon supposed mm-hmm. to look like? So how do mm-hmm. you know what the perfect apple looks like? And Plato's argument was, well, prior to being where you are now, you've seen the perfect apple. And so you spend your life doing this comparative, right? Mm. Comparison, constantly mm-hmm. searching for the good apple and settling for the best you can find. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the critic part, right? It's like, you've heard lots of stories. You've told lots of stories, but you're still looking for what's the most powerful impacting story. Right. Um, right. And, so and then do you, would you say then that the analyzer is, um, goes the step beyond that then by, like identifying the specific components of the story and the ways that it's told yeah. that makes it the perfect apple. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. So... yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes in the classroom, when I talk about that, I talk about cake instead of stories. Oh yeah. No, I love talking about cake. I know you love it. So, so cake. So you have the cake and this great chocolate <laughs> cake, right? And you eat it and you're like, this was amazing. It was good. I would, I would eat it again. And then you have a critic who eats the cake and then does that whole comparative analysis, right? Writes things up, goes and tells other people about it. But then you have the baker who eats the cake and says, this is a good cake, or this is not a good cake. Well, what are the components that makes it a good cake? Not a, you know, not a good cake. Mm -hmm. And how can I improve upon that? How can I Mm -hmm. deconstruct this in such a way that I understand how this cake came into being and how it, you know, is such a good cake. See, that's the subtle differences between the critic and the analyzer. And they do matter. And we're going to be doing all three of these Mm -hmm. in this podcast. for sure. And we may not call them that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure we'll slip between them without even noticing that we're doing it. But because the two of us practice all three of these fairly regularly, I think it's just going to happen. Yeah. And then, and one of the genres we, we, we like to look at and we're looking at because we think it really has such an impact is, is science fiction. And so, you know, we were both, um, again, looking at C.S. Lewis's essay on science fiction called On Science Fiction, right? I know. I like a good title. Yeah. So it's called On Science. C.S. Lewis, <laughs> On Science Fiction, and hence the name of the essay. And it can be found out there in lots of places. If you Google it, you'll find it out there as a PDF in some places. It's very short, and it's probably worth you know checking out. So, mm-hmm. so this is C.S. Lewis on science fiction. Um, now, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, a little bit about, the, about that article. You, you were the one that, that really wanted to talk about this article, right? Oh, I see. So it's my fault. No, no, not well, your fault. It's a great article. I... <laughs> Great essay. No, I'm just... no, it's a good essay. We've used it before with our students. Um, and I think they had a little bit of trouble getting through it just because he is a very wordy writer. Mm-hmm. I am a fan, but mm-hmm. he is a very wordy writer. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, he's writing it at a time where science fiction is starting to become more respected as a, as a genre mm-hmm. in the 1970s in the United States. And, um, He's trying, he's being an analyzer and he's trying to figure out what is it about these stories that are attracting people. And not only that, what has raised them essentially from low culture to high culture, Mm -hmm. what has made them into a legitimate genre, you know, that, um, is making the New York times bestseller list and, uh, uh, having critics pay attention. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things that he does that I find useful when I'm thinking about, um, kind of evaluating and digesting a story is that he talks about what the different subspecies are of science fiction. And you can do this in any, any genre of literature, right? (laughs) He's talking about 
written literature. He's obviously living prior to the time when everything gets adapted to film slash television mm-hmm. slash comic books back and forth and back and forth. Um, so he's primarily talking about things that are written, but it's funny because he starts off saying that if you don't like science fiction, you shouldn't be a critic for science fiction. And that's that's probably true. It is. It's a good point. It's probably true for any genre. And he admits that. And I think that that's one of the the best points that he makes in this essay. Um, Because if you, if you have a dislike for something, you probably don't consume it that much, right? If it's a media resource, Um, And so you don't have a lot of experience with it or you really dislike something because you have a lot of experience with it. And so everything that you that you talk about in reference to it is going to have this kind of like negative pallor on top of it because of your um, your negative reaction. So anyway, he says that you should at least be intrigued by something that you're going to critique, even if you decide you don't like it, Um, which he is. He enjoys science fiction, but then he really doesn't enjoy some other kinds. So then he starts uh, off talking about the different kinds that he doesn't like. And in the midst of that, ends up talking about the kinds that he does like. Um, So he gives us kind of five loosely defined categories. Um, As you mentioned earlier, we're human beings, so we love to categorize things. Mm Um, and so because we live our lives telling and living stories, we of course categorize stories. But, um, one of the things that I like about the categories that he comes up with is that he, as I mentioned before, notes the importance of the context of the person consuming the story. Um, you know, because some stories last thousands of years and their interpretation and their meaning and their relevance is going to change depending on the context of the person who is, who is hearing that story for the first time. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you here for a second. Cause I need to collect my wits about the different types about the of stories. <laughs> and I like, I, I like the <laughs> idea that he's, that he uses that term subspecies, which you mentioned before and kind of alluded to. Right. Like of the genre. stories are alive. Yeah. You know, instead of, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so you break down these subspecies and I'll, you know, look at them. So he talks about, um, you know, this displaced person um, as one of the subspecies, um, he talks about the engineers. He talks about the speculative, you know, sort of mm-hmm. subspecies, uh, eschatological, you know, sort of subspecies. And then he has this final one of fantasy science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And it's fascinating that when I was reading through this article and all those sub, you know, sub genre species that he mentions, I, um, I could connect. I could see stories that connected to all of those. Right. The idea oh, of t- telling a story. Here's the displaced person. They're out of time out of their own element, right? They become the any person, right? They're, they're us that's been displaced and they're giving us this picture of this world, you know? Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, but also, it is, go ahead. Can I interrupt you? You can I'm interrupt sorry. me. No, anytime. <laughs> anytime yeah. It is interesting, but that's the kind that he doesn't like. He doesn't, no. <laughs> and, and that's the reason that he talks about it the first, because... He basically characterizes that category as um, this is a love story or a coming of age story, right? Or right. any kind of like generic story that is then transported into another world. And he thinks that that's gratuitous. He's like, if you're going to tell a love story, there's no reason to have it happen in outer space. Right. So it's, it's, more, than, it's <laughs> more than the displaced person. I think he's really talking about displaced context. Right. And like the author is displaced. Like maybe they wanted to write a love story but their love story isn't 
being published. So mm-hmm. they decide to set it in outer space and see if it all. Oh, and you can find that if you go to, if you go to like Amazon or any place, right? And you go start looking through these subcategories, you'll immediately recognize the science fiction romance novels, right? Mm-hmm. Which are just romance novels set in a science fiction setting. Mm-hmm. You can usually tell by the covers, right? Like, need I say more? You can. You know. No, you don't need to say more. Although I don't think authors have a lot of control over their covers. No, no, it's probably the publisher. It's the publisher. It's the selling of it. But you know what I mean? And I think maybe sometimes there's some really good stuff writers who have their stuff that gets put into the wrong category and it gets yeah, lost. Absolutely. I, I would say that that's the case too. So I'm not saying all of them are that. But, um, but I would agree. I'm not really into the displaced person. You know? I, I'm not really either. And Blood Child, I think some people would argue, probably is that. The displaced person? The, the yeah, author, would, author looking uh, at current subject matter placed into a futuristic perspective. Mm-hmm. And we can come back to that. We can. We but can. I, can, I can see some people making that categorization, mm-hmm. which I would, I would sort of disagree with. But Yeah. And we can move on. We can move on. Yeah. And then the engineering, <laughs> the, the science, the person who wants to play out speculative, uh, futuristic engineering designs, right? You can tell those right. books because they get really in depth into how the space station or spacecraft was constructed and the, and the you know, all these details. And there's, there's an audience for that, right? They're really into that. But oh, the, my gosh, totally. I'm thinking of The Martian right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, The I... Martian. That would actually be an engineering sort of about, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I I. So I'm with C.S. Lewis on this one. I cannot read those. <laughs> I am not a fan. <laughs> I, can, I would say that I can watch them. Yes. Yes. I enjoyed the movie. I couldn't get through the book, which is a rare thing for me. I can watch them, but sometimes I can't read them because they, they, the, there's no character being built up in the book. The focus is on the engineering and the science. Mm-hmm. And that's the character for that author. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's people again, there's an audience for that. There's people that love that, you know, mm-hmm. and then we get into it. Um, speculative, which we very much have talked about before a lot of times is, you know, it, um, speculating a potential future Earth. Right. A future. What's it going to be? What's like? it going to be like? You know, and, mm-hmm. and we've seen all the misses where we've, you know, what, 20, 30 years ago, somebody uh, that's of that generation has watched science fiction. And it was like in the year 20, you know. 2001, right? 2001, a space odyssey. There you go. Right. right? Like we're well past 2001. (laughs) No, exactly. And what I always think of, because I love West Wing and I've watched the whole series multiple times (laughs) is when, (laughs) when Leo, um, I can't remember which episode it is, but he's really complaining about the fact that technology and science has not advanced to the point where science fiction promised that it would. And he's Mm -hmm. like, where is my jetpack? Right. Right. I was promised a jetpack, and I'm nearing the end of my life, and I still don't have one. But we've got lots of Star Trek items. We've got we had we already we already we already passed the Star Trek communicator or flip communicator. We're past that already. You know. Oh, absolutely. You know, the yeah. Apple Watch is getting, and other watches are getting really close to being almost that single little Dick Tracy, and also the sort of badge on the you know the the uniform for Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, look at the pat tablets, right? You know, next generation, we saw tablets. So there is place for that. And I think, I think some really good science fiction will incorporate a lot of that. Not just one, but include a little bits and pieces of those things. Because it gets into something that you and I talked a little bit about before the podcast, which is world building. Mm-hmm. And, we'll, and we'll talk about that maybe more in the future. But 
I think having little bits of elements of some of these subspecies, as Lewis calls them, in the mm-hmm. story builds the mm-hmm. world, right? I agree. It has to be a believable world. And um, the thing that C.S. Lewis didn't know, which we know now, is that speculative fiction is actually part of major corporations mm-hmm. that build gadgets. Because exactly. they want to know, hey, if we build this gadget how would you imagine it fitting into the meaning and relevance of a person's life? Please make up a story and tell us how the Apple watch is going to be received by humanity. Right. Right. Um, There's whole careers surrounded by someone being a futurist, right? There's futurists who talk about and go and give lectures. Um, They work. I mean, um, some of the uh, science fiction, um, some of the science fiction stuff we see um, from like the cyberpunk, right? genre Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. william gibson stuff william gibson Mm -hmm. even has one of his books in science fiction that he's done recently was about someone who was a futurist and a trendist you know looking at trends and future um, things Mm -hmm. and predicting what a future would look like so it's a thing it's a thing it is a thing um so all these things are things um and uh um (laughs) and, and they are and they are important things that are really part of this whole uh, genre that we're talking about um, of science fiction, I, but they fall into other things too, like fantasy. So it's interesting. Eschatol, eschatol, uh, uh, that word. I hate that word. No, I, I don't. Oh no, that I word. love that word. You, I was just going to say it's you, my favorite. You love word. the word. I love the concept, but it's eschatological. But I like eschatology. But anyways, eschatological. Um, <laughs> you know, if we're going to talk about that in a few seconds, just in Bloodshot. Um, but the fantasy science fiction, right? where mm-hmm. Lewis says the fantasy science fiction. And I have to say, that's kind of where I land. That idea of science fiction in a fantastic world, right? Not mm-hmm. our world, not someplace else, but another world, you know? And that idea of that's where the science fiction takes place, right? You don't, mm-hmm. have to have, you don't have to have Earth's history, right? You don't have to be building on something in the future of our current civilization. You don't mm-hmm. even have to have humans, right? You can have fantasy science fiction. And I think... I think Butler, she does a little bit of that too, right? I think she does. And I think, again, something that Lewis doesn't address here, maybe it wasn't on his mind at the time, mm-hmm. right? Because we're now speaking about this in a different century. But mm-hmm. um, he talks about how the strong opinions that people have on fantasy stories, mm-hmm. right? They either love them or they hate them. Um, but in his, in his essay, he says, if good novels are comments on life, good stories of this sort are actual additions to life. They give, like certain rare dreams, sensations we've never had before and enlarge our conception of the range of possible experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a conception of story that we haven't quite touched on yet that is definitely important. And I think that um, one of the things that Lewis may or may not have been thinking about at that time Mm -hmm. is that if you are someone who lives in an environment, be it political or cultural or mm-hmm. whatever, that you feel inhibited in mm-hmm. and feel like you yeah. can't be your real self. Right. Um, this is an incredibly important type of story to try and tell because you want to get outside of the things that are confining you. Right. And you want to think about like, what is a totally different reality where I could be myself Right. Right. Or we could be ourselves if you're a community. Right. Um, and and nothing would nothing would stand in our way or think that we were wrong. And I think that that's an important role that that fantasy plays to story 
two. Well, and we're not going to get into that this episode, but Ready Player One, we, which you and I have discussed before, mm-hmm. gets into that sort of thing where the world itself not very functional. So they escape mm-hmm. into an alternate reality where, the, you know, um, an online reality um, mm-hmm. with avatars where the world is better, right? And they can be mm-hmm. more successful. But I think there's a lot of that. And I think books sometimes serve as our portals to these alternate realities where we place ourselves in the role of uh, whoever the lead is, right? Or mm-hmm. we just love, or we take on the role of the narrator. If the narrator is the person, then we mm-hmm. take on that role. But if the narrator is sort of the, you know, in literature, the um, detached narrator who's omnipresent, you know, looking mm-hmm. over everything, we take on that role too, that godlike perspective of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of a fascinating aspect of story. So when, when we look at Bloodshot, right, Octavia Butler, one of many stories, right? She's written one of many novels that she's worked with. Um, and we take a look at what's this aspect of her story. Um, she does something, I think, that's unique in that at the end of her short story, she tells us exactly what she intended it to be. Yes. Um, so I do have an edition of it with an afterword. And you have a PDF version. Did that have the afterword as mm-hmm. well? Yeah. It does. And I actually own I own the book, too. I own it in, in a, the um, short stories as well. Yeah, in the short story mm-hmm. collection. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact, too, at the beginning of this book, uh, it's called Bloodchild and Other Stories, um, that she says that she's primarily a novelist and that for a long time as a writer, she didn't realize she was a novelist. So she ended up with all these story fragments all over the place mm-hmm. until she yes. <laughs> finally realized, I need to turn this into a full-blown novel. Right. So Bloodchild is one of the very few short stories that she has published. Um, and, well, do you want me to go into a little bit of, of what it's about and why I like it? We can. I mean, you know, I mean, I think we need to note that Octavia Butler is no longer with us. Um, she's passed. It's uh, true. And she is, uh, this short story itself was a Nebula, Hugo, and Locus Award and the Science Fiction Chronicle Reader Award winner. So mm-hmm. this is an award-winning short story. Yes. Um, I think there's just some key things. We'll, we'll recap the story here in a second. But I think it's, it's interesting to date that from an award-winning short story, and, and we'll talk about why these reasons probably exist, to date none of her work at all mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. yet been adapted for television or film. It's been adapted for a musical. It's been adapted, um, I think, for graphic novels, but um, never for television and film, right? And I think we need to talk about why her themes don't seem to be of interest to people producing TVs and films um, to connect to their audiences, you know? And I think that's something interesting to talk about. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's one of the main reasons why we picked this story to talk about as our kind of example of story Mm -hmm. in this, in this episode. Um, because we both reacted pretty strongly to it and our students, whenever we used it in classes, would mm-hmm. react really strongly to it. And mm-hmm. so it seemed like this is a classic example of why is this missing Right. kind of from the larger consciousness when other short stories are catching on more mm-hmm. um, and being remade. Right. Um, and I, I don't know, I will, argue, I will argue that it's a pretty universal story, but it's also weird. So I think it can be taken in a lot of different directions. Yes, it can be. And there are segments of it that when we discuss these things in class or with students can, they seem kind of different. They're unsettling. (laughs) They're unsettling. They are unsettling. Um, So do you want to, you want to recap it a little bit? Sure. So this is, this is sometime in the future uh, on another world. And there's a group of, it's speculative. (laughs) Yes. Um, And 
a group of humans has left Earth because they were being persecuted for some reason. We don't know. And they went to this new world, and there's another species that lives there, and it is an insect-like species. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to survive, humans have needed to cooperate with this species um, in order to grow, reproduce, live happily. Both of these species have to work together. Now, right. the catch is, the way they have to work together is they have to kind of share each other's bodies, um, which is creepy. Ooh, that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> It's very creepy, and it's an interesting point to enter the story because generations and generations of these species have been living together already, so mm-hmm. they already have right. this kind of new biological symbiosis established. Right. right. Um, and then we meet our main character as he, for the first time, becomes adult enough that he actually has to decide how he wants to participate in this symbiosis. And his whole family, though, is part of the uh, one particular um Tilk, 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 you know, T-L-I-C, um, yes. you know, the, the aliens um, are, again, their names and stuff. She does a great job of making clicky sounding names that sound like There are that. amazing names Amaz- in the names. story. Um, yes. And, um, <laughs> you know, for these um, insectoid human characteristic type um, creatures mm-hmm. that adopt whole families and, and they become part of a family unit. Yeah, so the thing is, is that these insect-like creatures grow very large. They grow larger than humans, is my impression. About three meters, right, in height. Um, and live it a long sounds time. like, it, yeah, they live a very long time, longer than human generations. They have, well, they have what seem to humans as magic eggs, because if humans drink the yolk from the eggs, they live longer. And it's um, sort of a narcotic fact it's and, very, and it euphoric. is it makes you yeah mm-hmm. it makes you feel euphoric and drunk and also just like not have any pain mm-hmm. um but anyway you get the impression that over the years um as they have lived together and evolved together the tlick have actually gotten physically bigger mm-hmm. because here's here's the giveaway spoiler the humans are hosts for their eggs mm-hmm. and so they're better uh, hosts they're better hosts than the other animals that lived on that planet before the humans arrived. And mm-hmm. so before the humans arrived, the Talik would lay their eggs, you know, as parasites inside other animals. Then the grubs would emerge mm-hmm. and, sacks, eat, yeah. and eat the animal. And then they would grow up. Right. And right. Um, so since the humans arrived, they have essentially struck a deal like, Hey, humans, you won't shoot us with your guns. Right. Um, and we won't kill you with our stingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll give you access to resources and whatnot. And right. we'll protect you if you become our hosts. Right. And that's disturbing. Right. <laughs> because, because they're, they, they, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting to, to glean from this story, right? The history. So these earthlings, which are referred to as Terrans, you know, come here, they're fleeing their own planet because their own species was persecuting them. But we don't hear like what the persecution was or um, how they were persecuted or whatever else. They just Mm -hmm. flee Earth to find a new um, habitable planet. Right. Because at the point the story starts, it's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it's ancient history. So they come to this planet and they come combatively, Right. They're going mm-hmm. to claim this planet for their own because that's what humans do. We are at mm-hmm. the top of the hierarchy. We are, mm-hmm. we are the dominant species and we are going to come here and we're going to 
to claim this. It's the space cowboy trope. It is. It's very much so. But the Tlicks, I recognize that they could have a symbiotic relationship, a mutual relationship, and they keep trying to get the humans to understand that. And they eventually mm-hmm. do, but it sounds like they have moved the humans into what they called preservations yes. for their own so, safety from wild Yeah, so it sounds, it sounds a little bit like, um, like cattle on a big farm, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Like you can, you can read it that way. But the idea is that they are protected from the rest of the Tlicks because not all of the Tlicks um, are enlightened, if you want to think about it that way. Right. And some of them would just go in and start randomly laying eggs in people who didn't want it. Right. Um, and so they've reached this point, the two species, where they've realized that the ecosystem literally will not support either of them if they don't work together. Right. And I think this story, in some ways, if we hop back to C.S. Lewis real quick, that mm-hmm. this is a displaced person story, right? I would sure, say from the sure. author that's displaced, it's like, what if, don't come into this. It's also speculative about the future of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has some engineering things, but it doesn't like dwell on them a whole lot because it mentions a car and it mentions the cars have circular openings, oval, open, mm-hmm. I think oval maybe, openings that are designed for the Talik to get in and out, which means mm-hmm. these vehicles must be, do you know what I mean, uh, have been engineered. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, But we're really talking about how they can live life together. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how they're going to function and live together, you know, in this particular um, world. Um, So it's it's but it's but it's 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 a debate. Right. There's a debate going on within the story. Sort of like a political conversation right between the 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 boy um, who is. Going to the be main character's main name character. is Gon. Yeah, Gon's going to yeah. be the, uh, as everyone will eventually know, I am horrible with names. And Becky helps me out so much. <laughs> um, uh, but, but the idea that, you know, Gon and his brother, what's his brother's name? Um, Quee. Yeah. Is, uh, so, you know, he is almost politically opposed to this whole lifestyle and everything that's going on. He hates it. Um, and even tries to convince his brother that this is not right. This is not how things should be. Um, So he feels, I think he's actually coming from an ethical perspective. I think he ethically feels that it's wrong Mm -hmm. that another species should carry the young of a second species. Like, I think he's just like kind of morally and just physically revolted by the whole thing. Which is fascinating because when we read the afterward, right? That is one of the things that Butler wanted to explore was the idea of the male carrying the child instead of the woman. Yes, it's so let's let's do a little side sidebar here okay. um, to go into the author's intent. This story sounds like slavery. It does. Like straight up, like if you're coming from an American context, mm-hmm. this sounds like it's there are aspects of it that sound like slavery. There's right. one point in the story where one of the characters is referred to as having brown skin. Right. So there's even a potential tie to the Terrans being African American. And being persecuted um, from Earth, and why did they have to flee? Do you know right. what I mean? Now we're getting no, into that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, but Octavia Butler never mentions that. He, she says, like, this is not about slavery. Mm-hmm. She says this is a love story. Mm-hmm. It's a story about someone coming of age. Mm-hmm. It's displaced, a story displaced. about, yeah, it's a story <laughs> about uh, parasitism mm-hmm. and her being afraid on her trip to Peru that she was going to have a bot fly lay eggs in her skin and she was just so terrified of that that she wanted to explore it in a story so from my perspective i have a background in biology 
I get that. Yeah. Some insects are terrifying. And right. so like if you can write a story about it and find a way to be curious about it right. instead of terrified, right. that's a very functional use of story. It is. Um, it is. And from an, from an ecological perspective, I love the fact that humans are in a new place with a new alien species and they have to figure out how to live in concert with each other mm -hmm. to keep the ecosystem going and each species going. That's something right. that human beings have a hard time doing here on earth. Right. And so it's fascinating to me to, to, to look at the, what if the speculative of, Hey, if we had to start over, like, would we get it right the second time? Right. Living, living in balance. Right. I mean, this whole exactly. idea, how do we live in balance? So they're striving, trying to live in balance, but there's constantly this push more so from the human side, of not liking this this is not fair you know well and to be fair it's gratuitous like when she describes yeah. the grubs being removed it is gross it is gross and but when you just when she talks about her fear of the bot fly right that's and if you ever look at a picture of a bot fly it's, you know, I, it's go, gross go off it should, be, it should be part of one of those uh <laughs> i see this thing's called don't google this you know yes. got bot fly. It's, it's gross because she was told if you get bit by a bot fly, or a bot flies, I think, infect open wounds. So if you have an open yes. wound, a bot fly lands on it, lays a larva, wherever it might be, on your body, that um, you should not remove it until you, one, get home to America, where mm -hmm. you have a doctor that can take care of you. And in some cases, you need to let it completely live, grow, and leave on its own, mm -hmm. which is totally, like, humans are opposed to that. Like, I am not going to... Um, you know, you know, my, I, I'm not going to be at the will and whim of an insect, right? I'm going right. to cut that thing out. But like she says, but infection can be deadly uh, mm -hmm. because it'll, if you, you don't, you're not going to get all of the, 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 the larvae out, right? You could mm -hmm. actually be infected by that. So I think that that's, I think that's where her, she was just terrified by that. And you mm -hmm. can feel that in the story, right? You can feel this like scene you know, gone seeing this for the first time of this host being cut open, right? And having these, the, the larva removed. And I think mm -hmm. she even mentioned there are other worms in there and says humans are interesting because they got a lot of things living inside of them already. It's, that, it's, it's true. That was subtle, um, but it's there. And it's gross, right? Because, you know, there's no womb, right? Because the eggs are, are laid in uh, male humans, mm -hmm. right? So Butler says she wants to explore what it would look like if males got pregnant, mm -hmm. right, in this, in this story. Mm -hmm. And um, so they have to be cut open. They have to be surgically removed, right? And then they have to be sewn back up and they have to recover. Like they had major abdominal surgery. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting from a relationship perspective, right? And mm -hmm. this, this reveals how long the species have been living in symbiosis with each other is that the individual Tlick that implants the eggs in the individual human is the best one to harvest the larva because her specific sting will right. help him be most comfortable during the surgery. And unfortunately, the main character in the story sees what happens when the, the mother Tlick, if you want to think of it that way, right. isn't available to deliver the babies in time. Right. The father's life is in danger because somebody else has to do it and the anesthetic doesn't work as well. Emergency C-section. I mean, that's really what we're it talking about. It is basically here. what it is on a kitchen floor. with Emergency like, C-section on a kitchen floor. And, and it's fascinating because in our current healthcare culture, aren't, aren't, you know, C-section cesarean births are on the rise. 
um, they're done more and more often is sort of more cutting mm-hmm. out of the baby um, mm-hmm. because it fits people's schedules. It fits their timelines. It's expedient. You know what I mean? There's all these reasons. Um, With, it, it, no, that's such a good point because the surgery was developed for emergencies. Right. Right. And that's exactly the type of emergency delivery that we're talking about here. Um, oh, absolutely. And so what's difficult is that the relationship between um, the, the egg donating mother mm-hmm. and the body donating father mm-hmm. um, in, each of these, in each of these pairings is close, right? right? They've, they've talked about how the two species have developed this process where the male child goes and lives with the Talik family or at least lives alongside, right? So mm-hmm. that they develop a relationship throughout the child's life, mm-hmm. right? Gan has known... Um, his Tlick, mm-hmm. right, for his entire life and knows that she is going to essentially impregnate him. Right. And um, the only thing that kind of spoils that relationship and makes him question that whole system is the fact that he sees this emergency C-section apparently which happening. Is, which is almost never seen. The human right. is almost it's very, very cut rare. Open. Right. Mm-hmm. The human's almost unconscious, cut open. The same thing's done, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't want the larva to do the natural process, which the Talik did before when they placed them in animals, which was which just to devoured. Eat the host. Just ate yeah. the host and devoured it, which happens in nature all the time. Right. But that idea of saying, I'm going to willingly go into this relationship with you, knowing about all these dangers that could actually happen to me. It's so interesting. And I hope, I hope everyone listening reads the story because it's a very quick read and it's, it'll have you questioning things on so many levels. But one of them is, you know, as a woman, right, mm-hmm. when you do have a relationship with someone and you are engaging in relations, mm-hmm. um, there is always that risk, right? And there's so many stories and so much literature told over the years from the perspective of that woman, the fear of right. something that is pleasant and happy could lead to either a wanted or an unwanted pregnancy, could mm-hmm. lead to, you know, there's so much literature from the Victorian period of people getting married, the woman getting pregnant, and then before they've been married for a year, the wife is dead right. in childbirth, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the, the level of danger that is involved in these partnerships is mm-hmm. palpable in this story. And that in itself is very relatable to everybody's like, you know, everyday human experience. Right. Um, But going back to C.S. Lewis's categories, I would argue that this, this story is actually kind of eschatological because Mm -hmm. the main function of those types of stories is to give you a very broad perspective on Mm -hmm. the everyday things that are happening in your life. Right. And I think that the main character has that experience when he sees this emergency delivery happening. Right. He realizes all these things that I have taken for granted, all these like everyday irritations that I have spent my time thinking about mean nothing because we are all minutes away from a gruesome, gory death. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, and yet... I still have to fit into uh, I still have to fit into this society because the way that we do things literally ensures the survival of my entire species mm-hmm. right so right. it's a very eschatological kind of you know up from the stars view of a very personal thing that's going to happen to him when he eventually is also carrying eggs right and I think if we bring this all the way back around to the retelling, this story. And the retelling 
could touch on any of those subspecies if the person retelling the story chooses to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think also in the retelling, what happens is that people try to shape stories to meet their own context, their own perspective, their own views on life, their own views mm-hmm. on life and death, eschatological, you know, in that mm-hmm. way. But when you look at some of the just a few uh, of some of the academic articles or things people have written about Bloodchild, you know, and these these examinations they've done. Um, you know, it's those questions of, like you just talked about, you know, would I rather die than bear my young? You know, the, mm-hmm. the, it's talking about this construction of gender, race and species and blood child. Um, the idea of mothering. What is mothering? Right. Yes. And so. Yeah. So here we've swapped the gender roles. What is mothering? So that's you know, there's things about that. Um, the idea of um, alien bodies and a queer future talking about sexualities. Right. So mm-hmm. the idea of these two species aren't supposed to be together because they're not really compatible, are they? Yet at the very end of the story, we, we are witness to a very intimate lovemaking scene that takes place between the Tlik and gone. Um, right. And it's so interesting because it's not lovemaking in the way that humans would understand it because it's essentially a parasite depositing an egg, right? Right. But the way that it is written about, the way that Gan understands it, the um, the emotional attachment that is apparent on both sides when it happens, right, makes it both alien and relatable all at the same time. Yeah, his 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 role of uh, making sure that during the process he doesn't hurt her because there's a scene where he kind of shifts and mm-hmm. hurts her a little bit as she's mm-hmm. in this act of um, uh, depositing, you know, mm-hmm. fluids and uh, eggs into him. And mm-hmm. then he's receiving these, but there's also these moments of sort of ecstasy from that exchange that takes place mm-hmm. that we read about. So I think that people are seeing this, but then they're taking that aspect of it, regardless of what the author intended, and then retelling these stories to mm-hmm. fit their own um, their own perspective, their own ideology, you know, of where they want to go with something. And I mm-hmm. think that's one of the interesting things that we're talking about when we talk about the retelling of these stories. You know, their original format how they're being retold, how they're being restructured and sort mm-hmm. of sort of like the core of what we're trying to do with, with story, you know, in, in, in our podcast. Is no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with Butler. Like I totally buy what she says when she says, no, this is a love story. This right. is a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes when you and I talk about science fiction, we ask ourselves, you know, did this happen? Did this have to happen in outer space? Right. <laughs> right. right, right. Um, and I think, yes, it did. Because there's no way that we could easily explore the idea of creating life and intimacy and a love relationship that involved, um, that involved a male getting pregnant. There's right. no way you could do that in like a future right. Earth right. without without a huge amount of intervention of science, Correct. right? Correct. Like if we had engineered men to have uteruses, and in some ways that would be kind of redundant and repetitive. Mm-hmm. This is completely new. It's like we're, again, I think she needed to take us completely out of our context right. in order to look at what a pregnant male would look like and not have any of the the same connotations All of like, of that. Yeah. 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 Gender roles. I, and, 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 and we're what talking we... about synectics. I mean, you and I have discussed synectics, which is this aspect of teaching where when a topic or a subject matter is too close to home, 
too uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. Um, Really, um, people couldn't fairly look at it because they're too passionate about what it is. Well, you You, have too much emotional attachment. You do. You do. And so you take those people and you remove them from their situation and put them into something that's alien and foreign and strange, Mm -hmm. right? That fantastical world that Lewis talks about and says, hey, what about this what's it and this witch it, you know, I mean, doing this sort of, you know, interaction. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, that's odd. That's strange. Let's talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. Because then they can discuss it. But then I think that part of the retelling, if we're going to do exactly what Aristotle said, is that the friend of wisdom is also the friend of myth, is -hmm. that we have to figure out in the retelling, in the conversations that take place around that story, um, and in the telling of others, how do we help people to be able to see some truths or wisdoms about our culture or society that's represented in story. Absolutely. And, and to some extent to truth about their own selves, because we don't exist in a vacuum. Right. What does it say about us? What does it say about me when I walk away Mm -hmm. from a story? What do I take away from that? And how is it? Yeah. And, and even going back to the very beginning, when we talked about rewatching movies, Mm -hmm. what am I taking away from that same movie as a 30 year old, as a 40 year old, as a 50 year old, right. right? That I didn't right. when I first saw it as a seven year old. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the function of retelling too, is that mm-hmm. you're kind of going back to a touch point and reimagining how you relate to that story. Right. And updating your sort of perspective on that or updating how that fits into your, I don't know, your palette, right. Of the mm-hmm. way in which you engage the world. And mm-hmm. is it still something you can hold on to or is it childish and you need to let it go and move on or does it have validity in the world today? That's something that we should talk about too in a future episode is mm-hmm. when it's time to let a story go. True. And when it's done, run its course and it's no longer relevant anymore. Yeah. Well, I think this has been fascinating. I think that, you know, this talking about stories and the power of stories and then um, and the way in which you've analyzed Octavia Butler's um, story, we could, we could spend many, many um, you know, a uh, podcast on just Octavia Butler's blood child. Um, yes. So and, please go out and read it. <laughs> yeah. And it might come back up in the future again, um, if it fits what we're going to be talking about, but that sort of brings us to the conclusion, um, which I, again, like I said, it was just a fascinating conversation on story. Thank you for listening to episode one of retelling. This episode referenced the following resources, blood child by Octavia Butler, elements of semiology and mythologies by Roland Barthes. On Science Fiction by C.S. Lewis. Please like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Leave us comments with your insights on the episode. We also love to read suggestions for future episodes. Until next time, keep retelling.